the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to hear a classic interview with Peter Jassik. His book, ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour of today's program. We'll also take a look at what Haitians are doing in the wake of the 7.2 earthquake they suffered just eight days or so ago. Well, just when you thought it was safe to take your mask off when you went outside, Oregon Governor Kate Brown announced today new outdoor mask requirements that go into effect statewide Friday. Masks will be required in most public outdoor settings, regardless of vaccination status. Well, the new rule will require masks for all people in outdoor settings where people from different households can't maintain physical distance. So if you can, I guess you don't need the mask, such as large outdoor events. Now, the mask requirement do not apply to brief encounters such as two hikers passing each other on a trail. Well, the state indoor mask mandate remains in effect as well. Oregon's hospitals are quickly filling to capacity with a surge of mostly unvaccinated COVID-19 patients. As of yesterday, there were more than 900 COVID-19 patients in Oregon hospitals and only 7 percent of ICU beds were available. The Delta variant is spreading fast and wide, throwing our state into a level of crisis we have not seen in the pandemic. Cases and hospitalizations are at a record high, the governor said in a news release. Masks are a quick and simple tool we can immediately deploy to protect ourselves and our families and quickly help stop further spread of COVID-19. Well, the rules do not apply to private residences, but the Oregon Health Authority is recommending people wear masks, even for small outdoor gatherings where people from different households aren't maintaining physical distance. It is uh, much easier for people with the Delta variant compared to people who were sick last year to infect others around them. That's what the state health officer, Dr. Dean Seidlinger, said. This is because they have 1,000 times more virus in their nose which means that those around them are much more likely to get sick because this variant behaves so differently. We're starting to see instances where cases are clustering around events like outdoor music festivals that happen outdoors. Wearing masks in crowded settings, even outdoors, will help slow the spread of COVID-19. Well, like the state's indoor mask mandate, the outdoor mask requirement do not apply to, and again, do not apply to children under five years old, Individuals who are actively eating, drinking or sleeping, individuals living outdoors, people playing or practicing competitive sports or engaged in an activity in which it's not feasible to wear a mask, such as swimming, although I'm surprised you're not required to wear them then. Individuals delivering a speech or performing, such as with outdoor music or theater. We're talking about the performers. It does not apply. The mask mandate does not apply. Um for day-to-day operations at K-12 through school uh, that are not governed by this rule will instead continue to fall under the school mask rule. Outside public events, spectator events, gatherings of the uh, general public on K-12 through school grounds will be subject to the rule. Child care and youth programs will continue to follow existing OHA mask 
guidance. Entities subject to the um, ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, must continue to comply with that law. Well, the outdoor mask rule goes into effect on Friday, but Governor Brown encouraged Oregonians to immediately start masking up. She said the combination of vaccines and masks is the most powerful way that we can fight this latest surge of COVID-19 and save lives. Vaccination continues to be the best way you can protect yourself and your family from the Delta variant and the most effective way we can help our exhausted nurses and doctors who are working around the clock to treat Oregonians sick with COVID in their ICUs, the majority of which are unvaccinated. With the full FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine this week, we have additional reassurance that the vaccines are safe and effective, the governor went on to say. Meanwhile, Dr. Anthony Fauci says the U.S. won't emerge from the COVID pandemic until, well, next spring at the earliest. The world-renowned infectious disease expert predicted that coming months will remain very difficult with high caseloads, deaths, especially in places with low vaccination rates. If we can get through this winter, I hope we can get some good control in the spring of 2022. He was speaking to Anderson Cooper on CNN on Monday night. The doctor said it will be impossible to get a grip on the pandemic until underwhelming vaccination rates dramatically improve. That would mean you have the overwhelming majority of the population vaccinated. Then we can get an overall blanket protection of the community. Well, Dr. Fauci, director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, um, was speaking again on CNN with just over half of Americans fully vaccinated and close to 100 million eligible people so far refusing to get the uh, shot. Fauci essentially predicted it will be impossible to return to a normal life anytime soon. We hope we'll be there, but there's no guarantee, he said, because it's up to us. Well, the question is, will the FDA vaccine approval change minds? Well, here come the vaccination mandates to, well, impose that change. That's going to be the biggest impact following the FDA's announcement on Monday that it has in record time officially approved the Pfizer vaccine for individuals 16 and older. Well, will this convince reluctant Americans? Well, under a mandate, does it have to? Well, the FDA's approval of the vaccine comes in the midst of a surge in cases, hospitalizations and deaths, we're told, resulting from the Delta variant of COVID-19. It's getting vaccinated a good idea for most people, unless you already had COVID. Yes. Yet just 51 percent of Americans are fully vaccinated, albeit in many cases because they're too young. Would the surge right now be as high if more people were vaccinated? Likely not, though a Mayo Clinic study recently concluded that the two primary vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, are less effective against the Delta variant than they were against the original. Ironically, the newly approved Pfizer shot is far less effective than the still unapproved Moderna vaccine. Well, some protection is better than none, we're being told, and reduced symptoms are better than severe symptoms. Nevertheless, after one party in particular so thoroughly politicized the vaccines in order to win an election, millions of Americans don't trust what a government agency is telling them. That's not at all surprising, I suppose. In theory, the FDA approval should bolster confidence. That's what the Wall Street Journal editorial board is arguing. In part, they say that's because there's now more data vouching for the Pfizer vaccine safety than there had been for any other vaccine approved by the FDA. In reality, however, this expedited process will only solidify in the minds of many that the fix was in from the beginning. And even the uh, journal notes, Pfizer's vaccine has gone from development to full approval in less than 18 months, a fraction of the 10 to 12 years required on average. 
that in and of itself certainly is an evidence of a of a conspiracy. But among citizens who greatly distrust government and the media, it doesn't exactly disprove one either. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later in our second hour, we'll hear from Peter Jasik, author of ISIS: Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books. Well, CIA Director William Burns secretly met with Taliban leader Mullah Abdul Ghani. Baradar in Kabul on Monday, a senior U.S. official confirmed. First reported by the Washington Post, the rendezvous was the highest level in-person meeting between the Biden administration and the Taliban since the group took control of Afghanistan's capital earlier this month. The meeting took place as the U.S. continued to evacuate Americans still remaining in Afghanistan and Afghan allies who had insisted U.S. forces before rather assisted before the uh, their government fell to the Taliban. France, the U.K. and Germany have all mentioned extending the August 31st withdrawal deadline in order to carry out an orderly exit. That's what the BBC reported. We are concerned about the deadline set by the United States on August 31st. France's foreign minister told the network additional time is needed to complete ongoing operations. The British position is we want to stay longer if possible to do so. That's from the U.K. Defense Secretary Ben Wallace, according to the Associated Press. Wallace, however, told Sky News that he is pessimistic about the U.S. extending their deadline. More on that momentarily. I think it's unlikely he told them, not only because of what the uh, Taliban has said, but if you look at the public statements by President Biden, I think it's unlikely. Well, the Pentagon said in a Monday briefing that it will consider leaving American troops in Afghanistan past the 31st in consultation with the president and allies, but dismissed the idea of the U.S. military taking back Bagram Air, Airfield rather to uh, speed up the evacuations. Meanwhile, Taliban officials told Reuters that they're unwilling to extend that deadline and the occupation by U.S. forces. The group warned about consequences if the deadline is extended. Now, this is really quite remarkable, this uh, terrorist organization dictating to the United States what they can and cannot do, and the president kowtowing to their demands. The U.S. ramped up its evacuation efforts in recent days, getting roughly 21,600 people out of the country in a 24-hour period that ended early on Tuesday morning. The senior U.S. official is describing it as an historic operation in scale and scope. In fact, it will be the largest airlift in U.S. history. According to General Stephen Lyons, who is in charge of the U.S. Transportation Command, a C-17, is taking off from Kabul every 48 minutes. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby said the progress has been aided by cooperation from the Taliban thus far and going forward. It does require constant coordination and deconfliction with the Taliban. What we've seen is this deconfliction has worked well in terms of allowing access and flow, as well as reducing the overall size of the crowds just outside the airport. Now, that applies to U.S. citizens, at least some of them. We are hearing stories from inside the country of U.S. citizens who have been denied access, who have been beaten up and so on. But it certainly does exclude Afghans who are otherwise entitled to leave the country. So it is an ongoing story. We are hearing earlier today that uh, the U.S. military uh, are drawing down. There are fewer troops there. They're leaving uh, sooner. And we're talking about just a matter of days, the 31st. And this operation apparently will have come to an end, regardless of who remains in the country. Well, a um, 
uh, Robert Wilkie, who is a uh, retired uh, uh, secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, he's also a visiting fellow at the Center for National Defense, says this about the steep cost of mishandling our withdrawal from Afghanistan. He points out that in March of 1975, an American president was fighting to save an American ally from being overrun by an implacable enemy. The North Vietnamese Army, mounting a massive conventional strike on the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, was plunging closer to Saigon. Gerald Ford The president at the time urged the Democratic congressional majority to authorize military aid to South Vietnam. His pleas were met with intransigence and disdain. An ally collapsed. Countless refugees were forced into the sea. Murder reigned throughout South Vietnam and reeducation camps became a way of life. One of those standing in the way of Ford's attempt to save our friends was a new senator from Delaware named Joseph Robinette Biden. I'm sure it's a familiar name. Now we have fresh confirmation of former Defense Secretary Robert Gates's warning that Biden has been on the wrong side of every major national security issue for over 40 years. He even opposed the operation to kill Osama bin Laden. The benefit, though, of having Biden in the Senate and the vice presidency was that he never had his hands on the levers of kinetic power until now. The president, whom the mainstream media heralded as the return of the Washington professional, the one who would restore America's standing abroad, is presiding over the most precarious uh, decline in American power and the prestige in our history. It took Biden fewer than seven months to accomplish what Jimmy Carter couldn't do in four years, make America an object of derision. Now, I think it's important to point out that this began with the Trump administration. He negotiated with the Taliban without including the Afghan government. Uh, now, I have to also say that the the plan was much more orderly. There were three conditions that had to be met. Those were jettisoned by the current administration. But uh, the complete withdrawal of U.S. troops began under the previous administration. Well, Mr. Wilkie goes on to say a few weeks ago, the president said that his decision uh, to order a total withdrawal from Afghanistan would be not at all com- uh, comparable to the end in Vietnam. In a way, he's right because it's worse. It is a catastrophe of leadership and planning. Withdrawal was formally announced in the middle of the uh, Taliban fighting season, not the winter months when the Taliban retreat to their cold weather sanctuaries. The White House withdrew American air power that would have devastated Taliban forces moving in mass in the open. Military and intelligence advice was ignored. In 1975, American sailors were pushing American helicopters off the decks of carriers in the South China Sea because the ships couldn't handle the flood of, of aircraft. Uh, and uh, refugees. This administration simply handed our our bases, military equipment over to the theocratic fanatics. Desperate Americans immediately began fleeing, filling the Kabul airport with planes trying to get out. Tens of thousands of Afghans who cast their lot with the U.S. are left to fend for themselves. Where the Vietnam parallel is most apt is the fate of the helpless Afghans. The mass rapes of young girls have started. Reports are coming in of beheadings of those who oppose the Taliban, and it will only get worse. The cost in human lives will be staggering. The response from the White House, a warning to the Taliban that they will not be welcome in the United Nations or other world bodies if they mistreat their people. Roman farce becomes Greek tragedy. We will be reaping the whirlwind. For decades, the difference between 1975 and 2021 is that the Soviet Union was a one dimensional threat with a um, sclerotic leadership unable to contest the United States on the economic and political front. 
This is not the case today. We had time to recover from Vietnam, even time to recover from Jimmy Carter. We may not be that lucky this time around. Beijing, Moscow and Tehran are watching. China is already warned uh, uh, Taiwan that it can't count on the United States to rescue it from the People's Liberation Army and Navy. Our allies in London, uh, Canberra and Paris are bewildered. Afghanistan is the crowning glory for an administration that believes its only mission is to manage American decline. Retreat also applies to the Middle East, where Arab states in 2020 buried age-old animosities toward Israel to stand together against the mullahs in Tehran. Throwing away the years of progress encapsulated by the Abraham Accords, the Biden White House has returned to the Obama-era appeasement of Iran and its proxies. Even in Europe, the message is one that America is falling back. The Trump administration provided advanced anti-tank weapons to Ukraine after Obama refused to do so for years. The Biden administration unilaterally choked off the flow of military supplies to Ukraine in the hope that Moscow would reciprocate. Instead, Putin has moved tens of thousands of troops to the border opposite Ukraine and continues to wage war on the cyber commons vital to American security. All of this, and we are not a year into this presidency. America has suffered an incalculable humiliation. The humbling of a great power is worse than a defeat on the battlefield. At least Jimmy Carter was honest enough to reverse course when he realized he was wrong. Don't count on a similar epiphany from the current occupant of the White House. Again, written by a former secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs, Robert Wilkie, a visiting fellow at the Center for National Defense. James Carafano, who is with the Heritage Foundation, says, call Afghanistan what it is, the worst hostage crisis in American history. He points out that on November 4th, 1979, militants seized the U.S. embassy in Tehran, taking more than 60 Americans hostages. It was hell for the captured Americans and Jimmy Carter's inability to extricate them helped doom him to a one term presidency. The way things are shaping up in Kabul, that national humiliation is being recreated on a far, far bigger scale. It's no hyperbole to say that it is starting to look like America's worst hostage crisis. At this stage, we are all just guessing about how many Americans remain at risk in Afghanistan, and that's the problem. Even the U.S. government doesn't know how many people have to be evacuated from Afghanistan or how exactly that can be done. Now, part of the reason for that is people voluntarily register with the uh, embassy when they enter a country. That doesn't always happen. And so the uh, embassy doesn't go out and seek people out, the, the people who come from the United States are encouraged to go to the embassy. So that's why there's uh, no hard and fast number. Well, at this stage, uh, we're just guessing at how many Americans remain at risk. In rushing the uh, withdrawal of U.S. troops before evacuating U.S. citizens and Afghans who are our allies, the president, in stunning dereliction of duty, didn't pause to ask about that. The only explanation I can think of is that he assumed, since he was gifting Afghanistan to the Taliban, they would let him uh, make a graceful exit. Well, now they stand and wait, wearing U.S. uniforms, driving U.S. vehicles, holding U.S. weapons until the 31st when the U.S. will withdraw and leave the Afghans and perhaps some Americans to their fate in that country. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our second hour, we're going to hear from Peter Jasik, author of ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. It might bring you some encouragement given our current situation 
in Afghanistan. Well, a cadre of moderate House Democrats forced Speaker Nancy Pelosi to retreat from holding an initial vote on President Biden's $3.5 trillion expansion of America's social safety net. More on that in a moment. Ms. Pelosi, who's the California Democrat, Speaker of the House, attempted to strong arm lawmakers into voting for a vague and ambiguous congressional rule to advance the package on Monday. Well, today's Tuesday, a whole nother day. Well, the move was opposed by 10 moderate Democrats who argued that the House should instead take up Mr. Biden's recently passed $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure deal. Well, with uh, the Speaker only being uh, able to suffer three defections in the narrowly divided House, the moderates effectively blocked the legislation. Well, at least for a, a period. Well, the House today approved the $3.5 trillion budget blueprint, and that is laying the groundwork for a massive expansion of social safety net and climate programs. Whatever the compromise was, the 10 moderates were willing to make it. Well, a compromise between the Democrat leaders and a group of moderates led the House to vote on a rule to advance both the budget deal as well as the separate $1 trillion, $1.3 a trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill. Now, the rule um, passage approved the um, budget resolution allowing the House to bypass a separate vote and also directs the chamber to take up the bipartisan bill by the 27th of next month. So what began as an intransigent face off is now, well, the legislation moving forward. One other news, Representative Schiff says the Kabul airport is a very attractive target for ISIS-K and al-Qaeda. Now, apparently ISIS-K and the Taliban hate one another as much as the Taliban and the ISIS-K hate the United States, as well as al-Qaeda. So there could be some rather interesting infighting within the country in the days ahead. Representative Adam Schiff said that Kabul's airport could be a target of terrorist attacks from isis uh, Uh, K and Al Qaeda as the U.S. and allied troops on the ground there attempt to evacuate thousands of people fleeing the country. I think the threat to the airport is very real, very substantial. This would make a very attractive target, he says. He was speaking to Fox News after attending a classified Afghanistan briefing on Monday. Well, representative, the representative uh, remarks come as chaotic scenes have played out at the airport where thousands are still waiting to flee the country. A representative shift said that he was concerned about the threat that terrorist organizations could pose to both Americans and Afghan allies on the ground there. The California Democrat worried that groups outside the gates could cause chaos that might prolong the U.S. stay in the way that ISIS-K believes might suit their interests. So there's not just the Taliban to consider or their interests alone. It's a very real risk, I think, to our aircraft, to our personnel, to people who have congregated around the airport, he said, whenever you have a mass gathering like that, it's an opportunity for improvised um, and other explosive devices. So you know how to pray. And other developments, retired Navy SEALs are posting on social media about Afghanistan. One imagining he was president, that went viral. He, um, clearly not a politician, admitted where he went wrong and suggested what he needed to do to make it right. Again, not a politician, a retired Navy SEAL. The Pentagon denied the U.S. uh, paid the Taliban for freedom of movement at the airport. And veterans are issuing gut-wrenching messages to the president over the Afghan mess, as they refer to it. A CBS reporter confronted a Pentagon spokesperson asking, are you being deliberately vague? Well, the answer is probably yes. And Laura Logan points out that the White House is a source of misinformation when it comes to the facts on the ground in Afghanistan. 
Jen Psaki, the White House uh, press secretary, is being panned after saying it's irresponsible to describe Americans in Afghanistan as stranded. Sadly, however, given the deadline, they probably will ultimately be stranded if they aren't already. In other news, Tennessee flooding has led to the heartbreaking search for missing adults and children. At least 22 are known dead. A desperate search in Middle Tennessee continues for missing adults and children swept away in devastating floodwaters that left at least 22 dead after torrential rainfall pounded the region over the weekend. Historic flooding on Saturday washed out roads, tore homes off their foundations, took out cell phone towers and telephone lines, wrecked cars. In the wake of debris, families and friends grew frantic over the whereabouts of missing loved ones. In Waverly, a city of about 4,500 people in Humphreys County, officials released a missing persons list of 37 names as of Monday morning, asking the public to help as crews continued searching inch by inch in and out of debris. The dead included twin babies who were swept from their father's arms, according to surviving family members and a foreman at country music star Loretta Lynn's ranch. Many of the missing live in the neighborhoods where the water rose the fastest, Humphreys County Sheriff Chris Davis reported water was gushing in. We tried to block the doors and it wasn't working. It was filling up and I told him, don't panic. It's going to be okay. I was leaving to go get help. The mother of the deceased twins told the Nashville News. At least two other children were missing in Waverly after up to 17 inches of rain was dumped in Humphreys County in less than 24 hours. There was one woman who had just moved into the area with her son Uh, just months earlier, who was uh, live streaming what was happening. And during that live stream was swept away from the home. She did not survive. Her son uh, mercifully did. In other developments in North Carolina flooding, four are still missing and four victims have been identified. Hurricane Henry, now a tropical depression, is still bringing heavy rains to much of the Northeast, knocking out power to 140,000 homes. Well, Dr. Fauci says he misspoke on when he believes the U.S. could get COVID under control. The good doctor, the top disease expert in the U.S., said in an interview on Monday that he misspoke when he said the country may get the virus under control by the fall of 2020, another full year. Uh, Fauci, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, told CNN the error occurred during an earlier interview with NPR. He apologized and said he listened to the interview. He tried to clarify and said if more Americans sign up to take the vaccines, as well as those who have already recovered from the virus, the country could get some good control in the spring. That's his story now, and he's sticking with it. And other developments, a Los Angeles area vaccine worker was struck in a hit and run It may have been intentional, according to officials. President Biden is urging businesses to mandate COVID-19 vaccinations following the full FDA approval of the Pfizer BioNTech shock. This was done in record time and not the 10 to 12 years, which is typical, which may um, prevent some from accepting that as, well, an opportunity to move forward. A Philadelphia police officer was shot during a carjacking call, according to authorities. And Governor DeSantis slammed an AP hit piece, as he refers to it. It was on him promoting COVID treatment, saying it's a uh, it's pushing a false narrative and playing the victim. Well, Kathy Hochul has become New York's first female governor after the resignation of former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. He's having a pretty 
uh, rough week after he resigned on Monday amid the sexual harassment scandal. He was stripped of his 2020 International Emmy Award the next day. And many critics don't think he deserved the honor in the first place. These, um, well, I won't use the word they used, should have pulled this Emmy months ago. Instead, they wait until the day Cuomo is out. Maybe they can give it to his anchor brother, who gave a powerful performance emerging from his basement after faking his own quarantine, Fox News contributor Joe Concha said, referring to CNN anchor Chris Cuomo. The International Academy announced today that in light of the New York Attorney General's report and Andrew Cuomo's subsequent resignation as governor, it is rescinding his special 2020 International Emmy Award, the organization uh, said in a statement, his name and any reference to his receiving the award will be eliminated from International Academy materials going forward. It concluded Well, the governor or the former governor originally won the Founders Award in recognition for his leadership during the COVID-19 pandemic and his masterful use of television to inform and calm people around the world in quote. Well, State Attorney General Letitia James concluded that Cuomo sexually harassed harassed rather at least 11 women in a 165-page report released this month. It was one of several scandals engulfing the once uh, the Democrat once hailed as the possible White ha- uh, White House contender. Media Research Center Vice President Dan Gaynor said that Cuomo is so toxic that even the far left Emmys don't want to be associated with him at this time. By stripping him of the award, now is simply an attempt to erase history. Well, police are investigating a fight at a Steelers game where a man slugged a woman. I have to at least admit that I'm heartened that that still matters in the 21st centuries. Uh, bodies of a missing hiker has been found in a Montana mountain uh, range nearly two months after her disappearance. The FAA plans to review Boeing employee reports of pressure over safety issues. And the White House is working overtime to get the mod squad or moderate Democrats to fall in line with the Democratic Party in the House. They were successful. A Purdue Pharma judge says uh, Sacklers is facing substantial risk of liability and anti-vaxxers rather have become social outcasts on Wall Street. The Ford Maverick has 100,000 reservations ahead of the fall release of the vehicle. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki bristled, saying, I think it's irresponsible to say Americans are stranded. They're not, referring to Afghanistan. At a press conference, the press secretary uh, told Fox News correspondent Peter Ducey, I think it's irresponsible. Jonah Goldberg says, why? He didn't say abandon. And if you're an American in hiding outside of Kabul's airport, I suspect that stranded feels pretty tame. I feel stranded every time I have a canceled connecting flight, which means about 40 percent of the time I fly United through Chicago. Mark Hemingway says not defending the uh, Trump administration's uh, honesty, but so much of what was said there just was uh, in um, inconsequential absurdity. The gaslighting of I think it's irresponsible to say Americans are stranded is so much worse on a lot of levels than this was the largest inauguration ever, period. Nikki Haley, the former ambassador, says from our southern border to Afghanistan, it seems the Biden administration's strategy for solving crises is to pretend they don't exist. Open your eyes. There are multiple reports of Americans getting turned away, harassed and beaten by the Taliban. 
Meanwhile, another story notes Taliban fighters are reportedly flogging Afghan civilians in the streets for wearing westernized clothing, such as jeans, as they cement their power in the country. Several young Afghans posted on social media they had been beaten and whipped by members of the Taliban for wearing jeans after being accused of disrespecting Islam. A team organizing private flights out of Afghanistan say while other nations have been awesome and heroic, the Biden administration is slowing them down. By the way, 70 percent of the population in Afghanistan is under the age of 25. They have never lived under Taliban rule, at least to their recollection. This will be quite a significant blow. Finding a hijab, for example, was a major issue for women in the country as the Taliban swept into power there. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo granted clemency to a weather underground convicted police killer among a half dozen given clemency hours before he left office. Torrance police found 300 unopened ballots for the California recall election in the hands of a criminal. At this point, they don't know why the man had them. A big donor Pelosi event has all the attendees not wearing masks, but the servers were. Perhaps they don't believe their own mandates. And Vice President Harris laughed when asked about Americans trapped in Afghanistan. Hold on, hold on, she said. Slow down everybody. Uh, She was uh, steadfastly avoided or has steadfastly avoided the uh, press since the Taliban swept across the country as the troops pulled out. Ha ha, she said, laughing. Um, I want to talk about two things. First, Afghanistan. We couldn't have a higher priority right now, she said at the time. According to a new poll, President Biden's approval is sinking fast as a mere but odd 25 percent approve of the way he's handling Afghanistan. His approval has also dropped on the economy by five points and covid by 15. The big trouble is uh, in the so-called competitive states. Biden is underwater there. Of course, his name won't be on the ballot. But his party will. Independents are moving sharply away from the president, according to the poll as well. Well, the Pentagon may ask the president to stay in Afghanistan past the 31st to no avail. The Taliban is warned there will be consequences uh, if the president delays withdrawal of U.S. troops. And some of our allies, the French, the British and others, are rather puzzled. They've asked for more time. The CIA director met with the Taliban leader in Kabul on Monday, and the president walked away from questions about the thousands of stranded Americans in the country, as well as Afghan allies in the recent press conference. The FDA fully approved Pfizer's COVID vaccine, uh, while mandates begin in earnest after... That approval. Well, Nancy Pelosi has been forced to delay. Well, she has passed that by now. Andrew Cuomo says his ouster was unfair and unjust in his farewell address. Uh, The uh, uh, current governor was sworn in as New York's first female governor there. A judge has ruled the California Prop 22 gig workers law is unconstitutional. Huh. And the U.S. Army says China has uh, improved the accuracy of its missile force. The Wuhan lab filed for a patent for treating accidental exposure to the deadly pathogens one month before the COVID outbreak. Not sure how meaningful that is, but that's what they're um, what they're telling us. And hospitals in states struggling with COVID are facing severe staff shortages due to burnout, as well as uh, mandates that are suggesting if you're unwilling to vaccinate, you are going to be fired at a time when these shortages persist. Well, on this day in history, A.D. 79, 
uh, long dormant Mount Vesuvius erupts, burying the Roman cities of Pompeii and Hercula, Herculaneum in uh, volcanic ash. An estimated 20,000 people died. We traveled to Israel a couple of years ago. I had the opportunity to visit that area. We were in Pompeii. Absolutely fascinating to see what was left there. 1814, the British set fire to the White House and the Capitol when they invaded Washington, D.C. during the War of 1812. 1932, Amelia Earhart embarks on a 19-hour flight from Los Angeles to Newark, New Jersey, making her the first woman to fly solo, nonstop, from coast to coast. 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty comes into force. 1954, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signs the Communist Control Act, outlawing the Communist Party in the United States. That would later be overturned as unconstitutional. 1968, France becomes the world's fifth thermonuclear power as it explodes a hydrogen bomb in the South Pacific. 1989, the Voyager 2 space probe flies to Neptune, or rather flies by Neptune, Really quite different to fly to or by sending back striking photographs. 2006, the International Astronomical Union declares that Pluto was no longer a full fledged planet, demoting it to the status of a dwarf planet. Now, there's been some back and forth on that of late. I'm not sure where that stands at this point um, as uh, things do change. And 2017 on this day in history. The State Department reports that at least 16 Americans working at the U.S. Embassy in Havana became ill in a mysterious health attack. Now, it's rumored that the vice president on her way to Vietnam, uh, that her aircraft was experiencing similar uh, experiences to what was experienced in uh, the U.S. Embassy in Havana. It's not altogether um, clear at this point, but that uh, has been announced as a, a possible Explanation for that mystery that surrounded all of that. Well, Representative, a Democratic Representative uh, Jason Crow has broken with the president on Afghanistan and the withdrawal deadline. Conditions have changed, he says. Now, whether or not that will make a difference uh, remains to be seen. Uh, but this is the first, um, at least to my knowledge, first Democrat to openly break ranks with the president on the subject. Now, once again, the vast majority of Americans have said they agreed with the notion or 70 percent, I believe, agreed with the notion of withdrawing from Afghanistan. Uh, the small contingent that was there holding the line, preventing the Taliban from overrunning the country and seeing what we're seeing today. That effort began under the previous administration um, and was carried out by the current administration without uh, taking steps to remove important uh, individuals and equipment. But Democratic Representative Jason Crow from Colorado broke with the president on the August 31st a troop withdrawal deadline, noting conditions have changed. And while speaking during the House Democrat caucus on Tuesday at a press conference, uh, he said that the deadline to get Americans and Afghan allies out of the country needs to be extended. Crow also said America has a moral obligation to get American citizens home. All I know is, and I'm quoting the representative, is that we have a moral obligation to ensure that we get American citizens out and our Afghan partners out during the press conference on Capitol Hill. There are more of those folks in the country in Afghanistan right now than we have the capacity to evacuate between now and the end of the month. That's why the mission must be extended and we have to do what's necessary to get people out. But it doesn't have to do with a date on a calendar. Well, the representative, uh, an army veteran and one of the Democratic impeachment managers against former President Donald Trump, 
said the uh, August 31st was the date the U.S. set at a different time and under different conditions. Those conditions have changed, he uh, remarked. We're in a different world now than we were in uh, when the data was originally uh, or the date was originally set. Uh, the president seems to be fixed on that uh, on that date. It does not seem there's any flexibility there. Our allies, uh, our European allies are puzzled by it. They have asked for additional time, uh, but that does not seem to be the case. What the explanation will be when Americans and Afghan allies are left behind uh, will be rather interesting and could have a major impact on the president's uh, on the presidency. Well, meanwhile, for those who join us later in the program, you should know that Oregon has uh, reestablished the outdoor mask mandate with some uh, caveats. The new rule is going to require masks for all people in outdoor settings where people from different households can't maintain physical distance. Now, the governor announced and we're talking about the Oregon governor announced new outdoor mask requirements that go into effect on Friday. But she did urge Oregonians to begin to impose them sooner rather than later. Um, the uh, date, August 27th, is what uh, the official date will be. Well, masks will be required in most public outdoor settings, and that's regardless of your vaccination status. Well, the new rule will require masks for all people in outdoor settings where people from different households can't maintain physical distance. Large outdoor events uh, is one example. The mask requirement does not apply to brief encounters. For example, if you are bicycling or hiking and you're passing someone on the trail, you do not have to rush and put your mask on. Well, the state's indoor mask mandate remains in effect as well. I'm thinking about just having mine surgically attached. Well, Oregon's hospitals are quickly filling to capacity. That's what we're being told amid a surge of mostly unvaccinated COVID-19 patients. As of yesterday, there were more than 900 COVID-19 patients in Oregon hospitals and only 7% of ICU beds were available. Now, I I read that and I consider back in February when I was uh, sitting in my home. I don't know what I was doing, watching television, reading. I don't know what I was doing, but my husband found me on the couch and I was unconscious. He could not revive me. I ended up in ICU for more than a week. Um, Only 7% of ICU beds are available at this time. That's a little bit of a frightening thought for those who may be vulnerable. Something to think about. It's official on Friday, but you can start at any time, according to the governor. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we return, Peter Jassik, author of ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. December 10th, 2015 is a day that my guest, Peter Jassik, will never forget. He was in Khartoum, Sudan, ready to go home to his wife and children in the Czech Republic when he was forcefully detained by airport security and accused of being a spy. Well, that was only the start of his prison journey because of his work helping persecuted believers in Sudan through Voice of the Martyrs. He was imprisoned in Sudan with very little food, no real medical care, yet his faith in God was stronger than ever. But the challenges were mounting. He's uh, made record of that experience in his latest book to be released tomorrow, Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. And this story that releases on the 2nd of June, he tells that story, the opposition he faced no matter where he turned, who his roommates were, and how God came alongside and strengthened him through this challenge. 
Well, my guest, Peter uh, Yashik, is the son of a pastor who was persecuted in communist Czechoslovakia, as well as equipped to join the voice um, of the martyrs um, in 2002 to help persecuted Christians in hostile areas and restricted nations. Today, Peter serves with Voice of the Martyrs as their global ambassador, traveling around the world to speak about his imprisonment in Sudan and encouraging believers to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in prayer and in action. We are so uh, thankful to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, everybody. Thanks for the invitation. Well, let's, uh, let's go back and talk a little bit about the nation of Sudan at the time the events that you write about took place. Um, describe for us the persecution that Sudanese believers were facing. If you visit the country of Sudan, if you would have visited that uh, country at that time, you know, you would have... Uh, you would, could uh, get easily the false impression, you know, that uh, there is a certain level of uh, freedom because you would see churches from various denominations. You would go see people going in and coming out. Uh, but uh, the major problem starts when uh, the person uh, would uh, follow Christ's great commission, which means to make disciples of all people, uh, including the Muslim majority. You know, otherwise, if uh, Christians just um, uh, had uh, were practicing their Christian life inside the churches, uh, they could live uh, more or less a free life. You know, they were certainly experiencing some persecution, especially if they were not wealthy enough to send their children to uh, private schools. They would have to memorize Quran with the Muslim fellow students. Uh, they would suffer uh, some persecution, uh, you know, from the employees. Uh, I mean, employers, because, you know, the uh, empl Christian employees would always um, have more difficulties uh, to find jobs, uh, you know, compared to their Muslim neighbors. Uh, but the major problem started when Christians um, uh, started to share the gospel with uh, their uh, Muslim fellow neighbors, which is illegal even now in Sudan. Uh, and at that time was um, highly, uh, they were highly persecuted for that. And, uh, you know, I heard about that persecution uh, when I attended the conference in uh, Ethiopia in October 2015. And I uh, heard compelling testimonies, you know, exactly of uh, what happens when there is a person like a Muslim background believer. You know, it is illegal mm -hmm. still now, and it was illegal at that time, uh, to convert from Islam to any other religion. And I heard, I saw pictures of an injured uh, young Muslim background believer student that, uh, you know, became a believer during his studies in Khartoum University. And I also saw pictures of churches, uh, uh, church buildings completely demolished just because their pastors were actively encouraging their church members to follow Christ's Great Commission. So that was what brought me there at that time. And unfortunately, the situation is still very similar, even though, you know, we hear some news about some changes, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, President Bashir was removed by... You should know that the situation is also, uh, you know, very interesting, because the guy who led the coup uh, was um, uh, Ibn Uf, which was a cousin 
husband of uh, President Bashir and married to his daughter. So what can you expect? Mm. You know, what uh, can what good can come out of this uh, uh, coup? You know, and then the power was handed over to people that were very cruel, uh, that are actually on the list of the ICC as uh, wanted criminals. In your book, you point out that for three decades, the Sudanese government had targeted Christians along with those who aren't ethnically Arab for extermination. So this was extermination. That is the the most extreme. Uh, And since the uh, former president um, rose to power in 1989 through a military coup and established a strict form of Islamic law throughout the country, his brutal regime intimidated, arrested, imprisoned, and tortured Christians. You had traveled there as a representative of Uh, voice of the martyrs to meet with persecuted Christians to do research. What was the purpose of your trip that was only expected to take four days? Yeah, you know, I uh, should uh, understand that when I visited countries uh, restricted like country of Sudan, I could not come as an official representative of uh, Mm -hmm. the organization called VOM because, you know, I always had to come uh, secretly, you know, unnoticed, you know, like a tourist, because if they would know that there is uh, someone who wants to document uh, the persecution of Christians, they would immediately probably ban me from entering the country. So uh, yeah, I had good plan for these four days. I had secret meetings. I had uh, uh, everything carefully prepared. But of course, you know, in country of Sudan, it was not very difficult uh, to uh, follow a Westerner, you know, in the country that has, uh, you know, so many secret policemen, uh, you know, that are work secret policemen that are uh, going back and forth, you know, they're monitoring the foreigners, that's very easy for them to monitor. And of course, I could expect that, but uh, I I thought that, you know, my mission was completed. I have... uh, uh, accomplished what I wanted. I met and interviewed the uh, injured Muslim background believer. I also uh, visited the sites of the demolished churches, even though it was uh, it had to be at night, and I could not uh, uh, take photos because uh, you know with the flash I would be immediately noticed. But I had that good uh, you know feeling that my mission was completed. But uh, only when I was holding the boarding passes in my hand, that was the moment when I got arrested by secret police. Now, the, the pictures and the material that you just described, I understand they were encrypted on your computer, so they would not be easily accessed. When you were um, arrested at the airport, what were you told you were being charged with? What was the purpose of that arrest? I was not uh, told much uh, when I was arrested in the airport because, you know, uh, those people spoke very poor English. You know, I tried French, uh, German, Russian, you know, all the languages that I speak. You know, my Arabic at that time was not fluent, so I could not speak in Arabic. Uh, But, uh, you know, they just wanted my computer, my laptop, my cell phone, my camera, video camera. So I've understood, you know, that they want to search it, and I didn't want to give them passwords for that, so eventually, you know, um, my uh, the time before the departure was getting shorter, and uh, it was obvious that I will miss that flight, and then I was uh, transferred to the headquarters of the secret police, and then they started the proper interrogation, you know, with the person who spoke uh, good English, 
And then I understood that they were monitoring me, you know, my activities. And of course, you know, um, if you delete some stuff from your laptop, you know, which I or from your camera, you know, it is obvious that uh, um, that was probably my mistake that I didn't do properly because I was supposed to overwrite the empty space uh, after the deleting the files, you know, uh, especially in my camera with the special software that I had available at the time. But uh, I just deleted them. I did not anticipate such a detailed scrutiny of uh, of my memory card, and of course, you know, then uh, you uh, if you have some other memory cards or sticks or uh, external hard drives, you know, if if it's something that is empty, unless it is uh, rewritten or reformatted or with a special program, uh, there can be always something uh, digged out of it, and that was actually the case. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, uh, this afternoon, we're talking with my guest, Peter Yashek. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is available tomorrow, published by Salem Books. Quick break. We'll be back to continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Peter Yashek. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. It's not just a book. It is his story told in some detail to give you some indication of what persecuted believers face um, when the enemy captures them and uh, experience imprisonment. Now, you had come to uh, minister to and to learn more about persecuted believers in Sudan you had just become, as you told us before the break, you had just become one of those persecuted believers. Tell us about your first experience when you were ultimately imprisoned and who your fellow cellmates were. You know, I was after nearly 24 hours interrogation in the headquarters of the Sikhi police, I was uh, transferred to the first prison. You know, I went through five different prisons in Sudan, but of course the first one was uh, the first negative experience with being imprisoned, you know, in a foreign country. And that prison was the prison of the secret police. And uh, even though the conditions uh, were very bad, you know, and there was uh, a lot of uh, humidity, mold and uh, insects and kinds of uh, uh, things that were very unpleasant, you know, the, uh, what was much more uh, unpleasant was actually that I found, found out uh, the next uh, morning, you know, that I'm actually imprisoned with six members of Islamic State. And I found it very easily because, you know, they asked me about uh, uh, some of the events, you know, what is going on in the world. These people are actually completely cut off from all information from uh, the outside world. There's no radio, no newspaper, no television. And uh, when I told them, you know, that what happened about uh, three weeks before my time in prison, you know, when uh, in Paris uh, during uh, coordinated attacks of Islamic State, uh, uh, 129 people died, were killed actually by Muslim extremists. Uh, they interrupted me and they uh, burst uh, bursted in a mm -hmm. celebration uh, of uh, 
shouting Allahu Akbar for several minutes and uh, hugging each other, rejoicing that 129 infidels got killed. That was the moment when I realized that I am amidst of these ISIS people. And of course, later on, they uh, clearly identify themselves. I got uh, more information about each individual, you know, how, uh, what did they do, you know, um, for instance, you know, there were a Libyan guy who at the age of uh, 12 was sent by his father to be a person, a bodyguard of Osama bin Laden, you know, and this guy was uh, treated with high respect from the other people. And uh, they used to call him a man of sword. And I actually thought that it was this was the title was because of his work with Osama bin Laden. But only when he after he was transferred to other cell, I found out that the true reason of him being called a man of sword was not being bodyguard of Osama, but being a member of the uh, you know squad that actually beheaded the 20 Coptic Egyptian Christians and one African Christian on the Libyan shore in February of 2015 just a few months before he was with me in the same cell you know i could say he you know in in a, a figurative way that he still had the fresh human blood on his hands and that was very shocking you know and not only that but there were some other conditions like you know i have lost um, in the first three months, uh, uh, 55 pounds of my body weight. You know, I after one month, they uh, realized that I was actually, when I was transferred to the hospital, that I lost half of my blood. And being heavily anemic and malnutrished, that made the whole um, life in this prison cell with the ISIS guys a lot more complicated and hard. And th then now, now I come, you know, to the point that I realized, you know, and... Um, my major concern at first was not that I would die in this prison, uh, but that I would l rather lose my sound mind. Because, you know, I was witnessing not only five times per day prayers, but I could not have a Bible. They could have Korans. They were reading Korans, uh, uh, you know, the whole day if they were not sleeping or eating. Uh, and uh, all of that, you know, was um, kind of, you know, uh, war, I was worried that I may lose my sound mind and I started to pray and ask the Lord, you know, please keep my mind sound. You know, I was not that much surprised that I am in prison because, you know, I consider based on what the Bible teaches about persecution, that persecution is actually an essential part of a Christian life. The Lord Jesus pre was uh, preparing his followers that they will be persecuted and he didn't promise them that always they will be released from persecution like I was. Uh, he said even some of you will be killed. You know, when you read what Paul was teaching his followers and he said uh, everyone who wants to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's in 2 Timothy 3.12. So I was teaching others and encouraging others uh, that the persecution is an essential part of the Christian life so how could I be surprised but of course you know when day uh, by day week by week months by months you know I started to ask the Lord how long Lord how long I will have to be in this prison mm. uh, in addition to being housed in the same cell a cell that as you describe it was really intended for an individual but there were several of you there so the condition in of itself was unbearable but you were tortured regularly uh, at the glee of your ISIS, um, your Islamic State uh, cellmates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it started with uh, my freedom being of movement in this cell that was 
very crowded. I know it sounds a little bit strange, you know, how could you move, but you can still move in the small space. You know, I was uh, not allowed to cross, uh, you know, when they were they were walking from one end to the other end. Uh, I was not allowed to speak on my own. I only had, uh, I was supposed to answer their questions. And uh, later on, they started to slander me with bad words. I was not called Peter anymore by them. I was called, you know, Khinzir, in which in Arabic means a filthy pig. And uh, they call me filthy pig, come here, filthy pig, go there, you know, so that was like that, or filthy rat. And uh, shortly after that, they started to uh, slap my face, beat me with their fist to my face, uh, uh, or later on, they used a wooden stick and they uh, were beating me with the wooden stick, or they were kicking me with their shoes, with their legs, with their shoes on, and uh, or they try to invent um, uh, ways uh, how to make my position very uncomfortable that when I was released from that position I could not walk I could not stand because of the pain you know after being in a very uncomfortable position for a long time but that all was the moment you know when I realized that uh, you know the words of Apostle Paul that he says in um, uh, 2nd Corinthians 12 10 he says when I am weak, then I am strong. So when we reach uh, the bottom of our physical or emotional strength, uh, then we can experience the Lord's strength. And I was able to pray for those people. I was able to, um, you know, even turn my other cheek when they were beating me. And I can honestly tell you, it was not me who was able to turn the other cheek. It was actually Christ in me who was able to turn the other cheek to them and also to share the gospel with them. And, I, you know, I was experiencing such a moments of peace, you know, even when, especially actually when I was being beaten by them. And their um, effort to, uh, they always came, you know, with new ways of uh, torturing me. And eventually they came with the idea that they will do the waterboarding on me. And, uh, you know, they uh, made everything ready for that. You know, they even convinced the guards to move uh, seven of us from our cell where there was no running water to the other cell, the only cell actually on that floor that had running water so that they could do the waterboarding. You know, they prepared some cloth, you know, that they could cover my face with and when everything was ready uh, on that morning you know uh, the lord intervened in the last moment but i have learned was being with these guys you know one other big lesson you know the power of prayer you know i was amidst of my enemies literally not knowing when they will slap me kick me or uh, use the fist to my face or use the wooden stick and, uh, you know, after all the, the five days prayers in the evening, you know, I could say that the nightlife started in the cell. And, uh, you know, they could stay awake till maybe 2 a.m. talking, you know, with each other. And, of course, you know, I was very tired. And at 9 p.m., I was able to peacefully lay down and fall asleep. Uh, and I was amazed, you know, uh, why am I able to fall asleep amidst of my enemies? And that happened every night. And only two months later, when I started to receive letters from my family, I found out why I was able to fall asleep. You know, in my home church, 
people were praying for me. They were mm. fasting. And especially, you know, at 8 p.m., the Czech Republic winter time, uh, people who uh, applied for this uh, special prayer application, you know, their cell phones started to ring with reminders, prayers for Peter. And for one hour, these people went on their knees in the place where they were, and for one hour, they were fervently praying for me. And oh, now the most God. important thing is that the time difference between Czech Republic in winter and Sudan was one hour. So actually, people were praying for 9 p.m. Sudanese time till 10 p.m. And that was the time when I could fall asleep as a result of their fervent and faithful prayers. Praise God. We're going to continue our conversation. Once again, we're talking with Peter Yashik. He is the author of Imprisoned with Isis, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books. We're going to find out more about how God attended to him during this season of persecution. So do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Peter Yashik. He is the author of Imprisoned with Isis, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books and will be available uh, tomorrow. So I would encourage you, if you'd like to understand more about what it is like to be in the presence of one's enemies and as a believer being persecuted and what role God plays and his people play in the midst of all of that, this is an excellent book to uh, uh, to read again, available tomorrow. You mentioned that during this time in which you are housed with these ISIS members, they had made the decision that they were going to waterboard you, had managed to uh, move from the cell that you had been in to one where there was running water. Um, but you were rescued out of that situation, uh, and one might find it difficult to see solitary confinement as a rescue, but d- tell us a little bit about uh, your transfer into solitary confinement and whether or not you were able to ultimately have a copy of God's Word. Yeah, you know, when I was uh, taken out of the cell, I had this feeling like when Daniel was uh, taken out from the lion's den. Literally, there was the only difference that, you know, the uh, Lord has kept the mouth of the lions shut and their mouths were widely open when I was taken from their midst. They could not believe that I was taken away. And the next day, was actually, I was punished by being put in solitary confinement, which in one sense, you know, it is considered like a punishment in any prison. And even the ISIS people were afraid of being put into the solitary confinement. You know, one of them told me that he was there for five days and he said, if they would not have released me, I would lose my mind, uh, sound mind. And I said to myself, you know, in one sense, for me, it was the first moment when I had actually uh, a free time to uh, speak out loud, to pray out loud, and to walk around. And for me, I considered that moment, the day when I was put on the solitary confinement, like the first liberation inside mm. of the country. Of course, I haven't been tortured by the guards uh, through, uh, they were fr- uh, blowing freezing air on uh, um, in, into my cell, and uh, they took uh, my blanket away from me. So I was literally freezing, but I could experience the Lord's physical presence, you know, like a, mm-hmm. you know, warm coat around me in one moment and uh, spontaneously 
the words of my mouth were my Lord and my God, because, you know, I have felt, you know, that the Lord was with me in the cell. And even my memory started to return, and I was able to uh, start uh, even singing, you know, one song, you know, and that was the song, Thine Be the Glory. You know, this is actually a hymn, you know, that I have memorized when I was probably 15 or 16 years old. And I could not remember the words of this song uh, when I was uh, heavily anemic and malnutrished in the first uh, uh, two months uh, being with the ISIS people because, you know, my memory was not working normally. When you're uh, when you lose that, my, that much blood, you know, your uh, brain doesn't work normally. But in that moment, when I was for the first night in the solitary confinement, freezing from the cold, you know, uh, my memory w- came back and I could start singing this hymn, Thine Be the Glory, you know, and the first two verses and the third one came about maybe th- two or three days later. I'm sure, you know, that the guards and maybe even the ISIS people, when they heard me singing the whole night, they thought that I got mad the first night in this solitary confinement already. So that was an amazing moment. And, you know, I was, for the first four months, I was praying, and my only prayer was to uh, be released and to go home. And uh, then I was transferred to another prison, uh, and, uh, uh, and and the conditions were much worse there. You know, we were f- maybe sometimes 50 people squeezed in the small room without a toilet, you know, that had maybe 25 uh, square meters. And one night, the Lord has brought another 12 Eritrean refugees and I was led by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with them. That was such a clear guidance of the Holy Spirit that I have experienced, uh, I would say, rarely in my life. But that night it was so obvious. So I went squeezed through the crowd of people to them and I shared the gospel to them and on that night the Lord has touched their hearts and they all were ready to receive Christ so I I encouraged them to pray with me and they all did and all 12 of them committed their lives to Christ and that was a turning point for me from that moment, I really understood that I had to be in prison exactly four months and one day. Why? Because these people needed to hear the gospel oh, from me. And God. that changed my whole perspective, you know, on being in prison. And another month later, you know, I <clears throat> was another, because, you know, this uh, encouraged me to share the gospel even with the uh, fellow Muslims after these uh, uh, 12 Eritrean refugees on the next morning, they were actually transferred to the uh, next uh, another prison, and I could not see them anymore. Uh, but I started to share the gospel with all the other people, even the Muslims, right? And they... Uh, I was punished by the guards again by being put in solitary confinement. But that was all uh, prepared by the Lord. And when I was transferred to the solitary confinement a week later, I have received the most precious gift in my life. You know, the, the representative of the Czech embassy came to visit me and he brought me the Czech Bible. So I was holding the word of God after five months of not having it. And I was so hungry after the word of God that I immediately started to read, you know, just standing at the window when the daylight was coming in and I could read from uh, 8 in the morning, maybe till 5 p.m., but I finished reading the Bible within three weeks from Genesis to Revelation. That just documents how hungry I was after the Word of God. 
you spent 445 days in prison. Um, what you may not have known during that time was that there were those who were praying for you as well as those who were advocating on your behalf for your release. What happened that ultimately resulted in your being released from prison? And looking back, how do you interpret all of these events? First of all, I would like to say that uh, we know that the Lord Jesus is the one who, when he opens, no one can close. When he closes, right. no one can open. So I um, uh, give the credit to the Lord for, you know, his timing and his sovereign will. You know, when readers will read the book from the first pages, they will realize how the Lord was miraculously preparing me for that time two and a half years before this experience, right. right? And I was already shared that how I felt and I how well late, uh, two months later, how I found out uh, why could I fall asleep peacefully when people were praying for me? So I was aware that people were praying for me. You know, later on, I was even aware that many people were uh, not only praying, but they were doing certain activities. They were signing online petition, you know, the uh, civic organization called Citizen Go based in Spain, you know, and they has a worldwide network. They organized a petition of, uh, you know, for our release, and that petition had uh, nearly half a million of signatures uh, from various countries. You know that also the European uh, Parliament issued the resolution uh, demanding uh, uh, our release. You know, when I was uh, in prison already for nearly one year. Uh, the European Parliament issued a resolution demanding our release. And, uh, you know, I was uh, considered like being a spy of Czech Republic. But when the European Parliament issued this uh, resolution demanding our release, I was actually reclassified as a spy of the European Union. So that had this kind of uh, uh, interesting impact. But for us, Knowing, you know, that uh, even from letters or from contacts with our families, it was tremendously encouraging uh, to know that not only that people were praying for us, but also they were doing some activities. Uh, they were not silent. They were writing letters to uh, Sudanese embassies around the world. And of course, you know, uh, I have not received those letters that were sent uh, either to me directly to prison. I only received letters sent through the lawyer or through my family. But uh, the fact uh, that we knew about the uh, body of Christ, about the church around the world that were praying uh, for us and demanding our release was extremely encouraging. I remember, you know, that when I found out about uh, my home church uh, uh, and their prayers that actually caused me to be able to fall asleep at 9 p.m. every time. I was actually convicted by the Holy Spirit. You know, how frequently someone asked me for prayers. And I said this kind of uh, usual typical Christian social phrase, you know, yes, yes, I will keep you in my prayers. But I was not uh, literally faithfully doing that. So I made this commitment when I will be released from prison, I will do this faithfully. And not only that, I will also encourage many other Christians in the free countries to pray for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted or who are in prison. And of course, you know, I uh, knew that persecution is an essential part of the Christian life. 
But when, uh, you know, I was already in prison, like maybe uh, seven months, you know, I was um, silently maybe feeling sorry for myself that I'm already in prison for seven months. But the Lord showed me before my spiritual eyes, you know, the pictures of three Eritrean pastors that have been in prison, two of them in 2004, one of them in 2005. So they were already 11 or 12 years in prison. And I was feeling feeling sorry for myself, you know, that I'm in prison seven months. So after this experience, I deliberately started to pray for them and not only for them, for other Christians, you know, my uh, prison uh, cell walls were actually divided into different segments where I have uh, visualize, you know, some people from various countries, from China, from Nigeria, from Eritrea or Central Asia. And I was uh, praying faithfully for them uh, because I, and that actually helped me to uh, uh, experience and view my burden as an easy one compared to what they had to go through because of their persecution. Mm. Well, once again, the book is titled Imprisoned with Isis, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books and is available for purchase tomorrow. I wish we had more time because there's so much more that could be said about your experience that challenges all of us to take seriously our connection with believers who are suffering persecution for their faith and our connection with them, that we have the opportunity to superintend, to pray for them. Uh, and to intercede for them. Uh, Peter Yashek, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. God bless you. Thank you. You too. Again, the book is titled Imprisoned with Isis, Faith in the Face of Evil. Uh, I would highly encourage you to read the book to gain an understanding of what many of our brothers and sisters are facing for the sake of and the cause of Christ. We need to take a break, but we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. We've been keeping an eye on what's happening in Haiti. We've been watching what's happening in uh, Nigeria, in Afghanistan, and in particular, those who are followers of Christ in those areas. And I thought it rather interesting. uh, A recent uh, column from an observer points out that the death toll there in Haiti has passed uh, 2,200 Samaritan's Purse Field Hospital opened there to help uh, with the situation. But we're learning that Haitians have decided that one of the most important things in their lives is worship. And they're returning to churches who were damaged by the earthquake that occurred there just uh, weeks ago. Uh, And gangs there who are part of the major problem in the country uh, may have been responsible for the assassination of the president are offering earthquake aid. Well, a gang leader there is offering a truce as well as help for communities in the southwestern part of the country that were shattered by the earthquake that raised a glimmer of hope for relief operations that have been disrupted by the looting of aid trucks and other disorders. So it's made uh, life there very difficult for those who have come to uh, to come alongside and bring aid. Well, it's, it remains to be seen whether anything would come from this offer. But um, this uh, gang member, alias Barbecue, um, said that while he is a powerful crime boss, uh, he's far from the only gang leader in the country. Widely spread social media reports of a supposed earlier gang truce have failed to prevent attacks on the expanding relief effort. So the people are suffering from the out, the fallout from the earthquake itself. And then those who have come to their aid are finding it difficult to provide that aid because the gangs are taking advantage of opportunities to loot. Well, the offer, um, 
came as many Haitians were being told returned to worship services in and outside damaged churches, sometimes for the first time since the magnitude 7.2 earthquake hit on the 14th of August. Haiti's Civil Protection Agency also raised a list of confirmed dead uh, to 2,200, as I mentioned earlier. Well, since the disaster, gangs have blocked roads, they've hijacked aid trucks, they've stolen supplies, they've forced relief workers to transport supplies by helicopter. In place, um, uh, places, desperate crowds have have um, scuffled over bags of food because it is so scarce. Well, there was a video posted on Facebook in which um, the hardest hit parts of Haiti's southwestern peninsula uh, was referenced, saying we want to tell them that the G9 revolutionary forces and allies, all for one and one for all, uh, sympathize with their pain and sorrow. Well, that was from a gang member suggesting that, well, we recognize the great need of our people, at least now we do. The G7 revolutionary force and allies will participate in the relief by bringing them help we invite all compatriots to show solidarity with the victims by trying to share what little there is with them. Well, it was for them to share it with them is something of a interesting statement. Well, parishioners attended a mass on the grounds next to the earthquake damaged cathedral of Les Chaos in Haiti. That was on Sunday, eight days after the uh, a magnitude, the 7.2 magnitude earthquake hit the area. The increase in the death toll was the first since last Wednesday when the government reported 2,100 fatalities. The government said on Sunday that 344 people are still missing. 12,000 were injured. Nearly 53,000 houses were destroyed by the quake. And while the, um, uh, the church at Les Caes still stands, most of the congregants lost nearly everything. Says the pastor, Badetta, uh, it's painful as a shepherd to witness your flock losing almost everything and cannot do anything about it. The situation didn't prevent us from worshiping our omnipresent God. Yet the atmosphere was one we've never experienced before. I could see in the eyes and mind of my people. There are so many questions that remain unanswered for which I, the pastor, am expected to bring some sort of answers. Lafield Hospital was erected there by the humanitarian group Samaritan's Purse. It was scheduled for uh, surgeries the day after it uh, it opened. Three of the 10 operating rooms that serve the region weren't functioning after the earthquake. So the U.S.-based group um, opened its hospital on the uh, Haiti campus of Central American University. The field hospital adds not only an operating room, but also a lab, a pharmacy, x-ray capabilities so they can serve the people. Even a week after the earthquake, helicopters ferried in four seriously injured patients from remote areas on Sunday. The coffin of the body of a Baptist uh, church minister uh, who was killed during the uh, earthquake that hit the area eight days ago is carried to the cemetery during his funeral in the uh, neighborhood that he grew up in, in that less chaos a- uh, area in Haiti on Sunday. Uh, one nurse was preparing the operating room, a large tent for hand surgery on Sunday afternoon. A surgery on a broken femur was scheduled for later and business as usual, trying to meet the needs of people uh, who have been seriously injured. Well, the fans uh, to move the sweltering air, the open flaps of the tent to allow ventilation were major differences from a sterile operating theater, which is what you would typically expect, but far cleaner than the conditions most patients have been in until they arrived. A normal operating room would not have this kind of setup. We just have to do what we can and keep it as clean as we can, and hopefully the patients do okay. That's the makeshift um, condition under which they have to function. But Samaritan's Purse has come in 
and are willing to serve the people. Some patients have received some initial treatment but require more care. Others are being treated for the first time. People needing help also showed up at the public hospital across town. Spaces at a premium there. Some are on beds outside the wards. If their injury is less serious, they might be sitting on the ground on a square of cardboard. The hospital has been receiving support and at the moment had the supplies it needed to treat the cases uh, that they're seeing now in what is their makeshift ER. People carry a flower offering next to the earthquake destroyed church where the Baptist church minister had died during this uh, funeral in the uh, the neighborhood uh, on Sunday, eight days after the event in Los Cales. Many attended church Sunday to mourn. Uh, those lost to give thanks for their own survival and at an evangelical church in another area, another neighborhood, parishioners sang hymns under beams of uh, sunlight that streamed through holes in the roof of the walls. One pastor said Sunday service was special because until now his congregation had been unable to meet since the quake. Today was a must. Uh, he was standing below a gaping open uh, opening high in his church's facade to thank God, he protected us. We did not die. Well, this church was one of the few where congregations, congregants rather could worship inside. At many others, services were held in the street outside of the collapsed sanctuaries. The son and mother of Baptist church minister Andre Tisano, who was killed during the earthquake that hit the area eight days ago in that neighborhood, also joined them in worship. An assistant pastor at Third uh, Mission Evangelique Baptist well, it's a Haitian Baptist church in Les Cales, said there were uh, myriad reasons fewer believers came out to worship on Sunday. Some people had not yet entered the worship center for fear of aftershocks. Others didn't know if the church was going to meet. Uh, those um, whose homes collapsed didn't have the clothes to come to church. Uh, even then, they wanted to dress appropriately, according to their standard. Some people had not yet entered the worship center. Another pastor um uh, was badly uh, said that his church was badly damaged. He preached on Psalm 91 and on the Lord as the invincible shelter during the catastrophe. The congregation is totally exhausted and scared, he said. The devastation struck another village in the countryside, about 80 miles northwest of the quake epicenter. One local congregation's Sunday service normally attract about 700 people. This week, only 200 worshipers showed up at church. Again, people are shared of, scared of aftershocks and insecurity because they don't have houses anymore. You can see fear in their eyes, and that's what's happening in Haiti. Some are returning to facilities they had joined together with other believers to worship. Others, out of fear of moving from what used to be their homes to what used to be their church, have remained in place hoping for a better future. Again, Samaritan's Purse is on the ground ministering to them if you're looking for a resource to support that effort. Well, we're out of time. I do want to thank James Blend, our producer, Clark Hilton, today's engineer, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.